that in February, and just, you know, it hit me yet again, and every time I'm up in the air, it just, it just blows me away. Just a reminder of the absolute majesty of creation. Um, you know, looking out the window across the sky, just, it, you're just in awe, you know, of the vastness of this planet that we occupy. I mean, you're seven miles in the air, and you see just a, a little portion of it. Just, just the majesty, the absolute majesty. This planet, you know, it's, it's the hugeness of it, the massiveness of it, if that's even a word, you can correct me later. Um, you know, we we're, we're look at stats, you know, numbers are numbers. I'm kind of a numbers guy. But, you know, this, this planet has to rotate a, a, roughly 1,000 miles an hour to make a revolution in a day. I mean, that's, that's, that's intense. We are so far from the sun, uh, looking at some stats online, hopefully this is all correct. I did some math to, to look at it, but 60, 67,000 miles an hour right now, we're rocketing through space. 67,000 miles, approximately, to get around the sun in a year. I mean, that, that's, that's intense. All this, all this motion, all this speed, that, you know, here we sit. I put a piece of paper down. Here it sits. I mean, just, just as God designed it. That's the thing. Here we sit, seemingly motionless, but that's how God designed it. Just, it's just amazing. So the absolute vastness of this planet. You know, there are words, phrases in the Bible Sometimes we gloss over, they're not necessarily seen as the main emphasis, emphasis of the passage, but sometimes those are the ones that are uh, the most fulfilling to camp on from time to time. So let them occupy some space in our minds. In the creation account, Genesis chapter 1, you know, a phrase uh, that just, it hits me time and time again as I, as I experience God's creation. And it's, it's the then God said. I've chatted with a few people on this in the past, but you know the then God said to the Bible, or and God said, depending on your version. But the enormity of creation is established on these words: "Then God said." There wasn't some you know process or building of materials over time, you know, to eventually get to this end product where God says it was good. You know, we don't have a, a an account of God making dirt and pressing dirt together with a bunch of heat and making rocks, and then, hey, I've put a bunch of rocks together, I can make a mountain. It's just, no. You know, it's, it's then God said. <laughs> so this is, this is God. This is our God. Indescribable power. Awesome power. And I would say terrifying power. Effortlessly, by his will, all these things were created. Our planet, this solar system that we're in, the galaxy that we're just a speck inside of, the galaxy that's a part of innumerable more galaxies throughout this universe. He did all of this effortless, effortlessly by his will. So in Genesis, just going just gonna to hit the, the then God says, and, and there's scripture you can memorize right there. There's three words. I've got them. Then God said. So then God said, Genesis... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3, let there be light. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, then God said, 
let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, then God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Imagine if you were there at that moment, all of a sudden, then God said, skies are filled with birds. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. We need to allow God to overwhelm us, really to put us in our place, be mindful of who he is. Let these seemingly little, normal, you know, average things around us, let them wow us. Let them you know, cause us to worship him. Then God said, and it was. Then God said, and it is. Then God said, and it continues to be to this day. I'm gonna, I think that's where I'm stopping. <laughs> it just we have the answer to the the question of the origin of the universe in three simple words. Then God said, and that's enough. You know, he's God. He doesn't have to explain every little thing he does. We're not going to understand it. Then he said it, and it was. So let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power, and nothing is too difficult for you. Thank you for giving us so much evidence of your creative power, your awesomeness. We praise you, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We worship you as the only one worthy, truly worthy of our adoration. And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so... Everybody, including the preacher, fell asleep in the first service. Um, so I'm glad you're all here, awake, and ready to go. Um, I was thinking, coming to this service this morning, um, ten years ago, this month, I was introduced via phone to a man by the name of John Stoopful. Now, the PTSD has worn off. <laughs> but, you know, it's just interesting to think, uh, I, don't know, I don't know where the 10 years went, wherever it went, my hair f- is following, um, but uh, it's amazing to think at that time, curious, what's, what's the Lord going to do with our, with our little family? We just had Maggie and James, we just had Sam, and... Just to think of the, the 10 years of the Lord's grace, pure, pure sovereign grace. Does my heart good to think on that. So let me, let me pray. I just want to thank the Lord for, for that uh, grace he has shown and for the next 50 in front of us. Father, thank you, Lord God, for your your incredible grace. Lord, I thank you for Pacific Coast Bible Church, and I thank you, Father, for the 
the gifts of your church. These individuals, Lord, that make up this body. I thank you, Lord, for the absolute precious, precious, rare friendships in this place, Lord God. And the grace that you've shown uh, in those. Father, I exalt you in that. And just simply want to express, God, as I look behind myself in the last ten years, and seeing how you have shown yourself incredibly faithful in so many abundant ways, Lord God. And I am so grateful to you, Father, that this is where we call our church family. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being allowed to herald this message. And I I love you, Lord, and praise your name. And I ask that as we, we turn our attention to your word this morning, Father, that you would stir our hearts, not just to be caught off by emotion, but Lord God, to be flattened by our God, and be caught in wonder at at you. Father, thank you for the divine miracle of the new birth that you made us alive in him. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Uh, Beginning at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be uh, everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, he has broken my covenant. As you walk through the Bible, as you have been, Lord willing, walking through the Bible, if I this morning handed a little piece of paper to each of you and said, write down what, we, what you would consider maybe the top five biblical themes, what might you write? Don't say it out loud, just think about it with me. If I said, what are the top five biblical themes? When I say theme, I mean... You start reading through the Bible, and you're reading Genesis, and then you keep reading. You read all 66 books, and you go, I'm seeing something. I saw something in the first books of this Old Testament. I saw something in the Psalms. I, saw some, I keep seeing this pop up, and I'm thinking there's something going on here. There's something more than meets the eye than just to be stuck in the text with blinders. I, I'm seeing that the whole book has something to say on this theme. What would you put as some of those themes? Um, Obviously, without the remission uh, or without the shedding of blood, the remission of sins cannot take place. Um, There are many, many themes as you study your Bible that you will go, wow, I had no idea. Like I said, I can't remember if it was last week or a few weeks ago, when somebody buys a new car, they see that car everywhere, right? You're like, I never even noticed a Ford Focus, and now everybody's buying Ford Focuses these days. I can't help it, but when somebody points out a theme in the Scripture, you read through the Word and you keep going, wow, this is everywhere, and I didn't see it yet. I've never seen this. One of those themes that I want to kind of kick off this study with this morning, and this is part one, by the way, I don't have it up there, part one of, of this passage. One of those themes is man's inability swallowed up by God's power. Man's inability swallowed up by God's power. Now, obviously that's huge. Obviously that's at the very core of the gospel message. But if you start reading your Bible and you say, I want to see where God's power swallows up man's limitations. I want to see where God's power comes and fulfills, satisfies, cares for, and moves forward man in his inability. You know, think about, uh, for instance, this concept of this massive giant warrior who wants to destroy all the little shrimps on the other team. And one of those little shrimps has a bunch of smooth stones, and he's got this slingshot, right? I just came up with this this morning. And, uh, and, and he, he, comes up, he comes up to this giant, and he flings it and gets him. He drops, you know, the rest of the story. And you come away going, wow, David is the man, right? I hope not. The storyline of Scripture is not David, but the God of David. Not Abraham or Abram, Sarai, but the God of Abraham, Sarai. God's power seen in the inability of man. And you come to the New Testament and Jesus Christ says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
Ephesians 2, you who were dead in sins and trespasses, he made alive. Page after page of your Old Testament, you keep going, wow, it is really not that impressive. These people are not that impressive. But the God of these people is fantastic. Well, that's where this whole thing starts in chapter 17 this morning is this concept, this biblical theme of the power of God swallowing up the issues in the life of Abram. Now remember, up to this point, God went to Abram, right? He said, Abram, I want you to follow me. I have a land, I have a multitude of people who are going to come from you, and I'll be your God. So I want you to leave all the foreign gods you've been following, okay? Just just drop it, pick up, leave your family, and take off. What land? I'll, I'll 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 show you. When we get there, I'll show you. you know, it's like the kids. Are we there yet? We'll, we'll be there when we're there. <clears throat> Just hold on. Just come with me, Abram. Um, how am I going to have children? My wife's barren. There's no way of having kids. So how, how on earth would... You, you will. You will. You'll, be, you'll have multitudes come from you, okay? Trust me on this one. Go to the land, and I'm going to give you a, a, a multitude of people that are going to come from you. And Abram's response is, okay. <laughs> and he follows God. And then after we see the, some of the falls and mess-ups where he says to Sarai, I want you just to say I'm your brother. I don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to get in trouble. So after all, lie, and everything will work out, which it doesn't. But then we see that he kind of on the upswing of this roller coaster of this man's life, Lot's taken captive. He gets his warriors together. They go. They rescue Lot. And the king of Salem says, God has delivered those kings into your hands. He's the one who did this through you, Abram. God has shown his power in it. And then the king of Sodom says, I want to give you a bunch of riches. And he says, I don't want the riches. I don't want anybody to say anybody made me rich. I want God to be the one who provides that. So no thank you. Then you fast forward, and eventually you see that Sarai comes to him and says, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not parents. So... I want you to take my servant, take the servant, and I want you to have a child with her, and then that will become our child. We'll help God out and give him a break. And, beloved, you if you were here the last couple weeks, you saw the fallout of that. It's just devastating. And so one thing this proves is that Abraham, Abram, is a human being who struggles, who suffers, who makes all kinds of mistakes and blows it but is a human being who is righteous by faith, chapter 15. So after this roller coaster, he has Ishmael with Hagar, and then 13 years. Now, the Bible does not say 13 years of silence. But it appears that way. It appears that God hasn't said anything to Abram from that time. It appears that for these 13 years, he's seen Ishmael grow up and get older, and grow up, and get older. And now Hagar's living there, Sarai and Hagar, as we'll see later in the story, still not getting along. She can't stand this kid. It's just a consistent pointing to our mistake. And after 13 years, at 99 years old, God comes to him. 99. All this time... God has said, I will do this, and all this time, he doesn't have proof of it. He's tried to help God out, he's failed, he's picked back up, and all this time he's going, so you promised it, where's your 
promise. And at 99 years old, God comes to him. Please notice, pursued by the Almighty. 17 verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, he's 19 years old, Ishmael's 13 years old, is 10 years younger than Abram. And God comes to him in this chapter, and the very first thing he does is he introduces himself. He refreshes them of who he is. He reminds them of who he is. That's why um, I wrote that call to worship for Link to read to you guys this morning, uh, to dovetail with this passage. He comes and expresses who he is. Now, the reason that's important, guys, is because what he's about to say in this, um, in this covenant and the details of this covenant are impossible. And what's impossible with man is what? Possible with God. So God comes and his very thing, first thing out of his mouth is a declaration of who he is. This is a title. Anytime you see the titles of God in Scripture, it's revelatory of his character, revelatory of his abilities, of his attributes. And so he comes and says, Behold, I am El Shaddai. I am almighty. Now, there's two pieces to this. Sovereignty and power. There are no competition, there, are, there is no competition to me in regards to my power or authority. God answers to no man. God answers to no God. God answers to no one. Nobody dictates to God what he will do, when he will do it, how he will do it. He is sovereign to do whatever he wants, the scripture says. Our Lord is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. But with that sovereignty, and it's very tricky to pull away the power and sovereignty. They, they're, just, they're needed to be together, like handcuffs. They, they come right together. The power and the sovereignty, the sovereignty and the power. I have all power, therefore I am sovereign. I am sovereign, therefore I have all power. I am almighty. Is there some that are mighty in this world, more mighty than others in their own strength? Yeah, there's people that can bench press more than I can. There's people who can preach more eloquent than I can. People who can do math better than I can. There's people who can do whatever, fill in the blank. Yes, my limitations are terrible. He has none. My limitations are so evident. He has none. I am... El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Nobody competes with me. Now, why is that such a pivotal piece with the passage? It's kind of like this. God is putting a foundation to the covenant. The foundation of the covenant is God's ability. If the foundation of the covenant is Abram's goodness or his capabilities, covenant done. If the covenant is the power of God and the the almighty power of God, covenant is pretty stable. Understatement of the age. And so our Lord comes and says, I am almighty. I will show my power through you. Now, talk about a biblical theme. If you track through your whole Bible and look and say, ask this question, 
Are there times when God shows that he is almighty in the weakness of man? And you will chalk through the rest of your Bible and see it all over the place. This is why, sidebar real quick, just application here. This is why it drives me crazy when we Christians at times will go and we'll find somebody who's popular. We'll say, hey, look, they came to Christ and maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Regardless of that, we'll think because they have influence in the culture, will put them up on a pedestal, the world will see Christians who used to be influential, they'll share the gospel, everybody will get saved because they're influential. You know what happens? Well, maybe some people get saved, maybe not, but the church puts so much emphasis in the person standing, what happens so painfully is when they fall morally. And we were thinking, this will be the guy. This is the one, or the girl. This is the one that will, if we just set him up there on that pedestal and they preach Christ because they're such an influential figure, they will change the world. Beloved, please don't miss it. That is contrary to your Bible. Your Bible, my Bible, says with clarity, God shines brightly through a bunch of cracked pots. Not cracked pots, cracked pots. God shows his power and his might through weakness, not through our strength. If it's through our strength, the world looks and goes, well, of course, look at them. They're strong, they're powerful, they have anything you want. They're significant in culture. So, of course, you would believe that. But when it's that person that's got nothing but Christ to show, he shows his power through them. What if David was the exact same dimensions as Goliath and took him out? We'd go, guy's a fighter. That David is something. No, rather, God says, I will take the weakest. Remember, he puts on Saul's armor and he can't even walk around, right? I'll take the weakest and I'll show my strength in his weakness. Well, wait a minute, though. Does that really work? Because then only God gets the glory. I'm almighty, he says. So, Abram, I want you to sit down for a bit, and I want you to hear carefully what I will do. Not what you will do, but what I will do. Before the revelation of this covenant, as God explains it, God restates his authority. In light of who God is, he calls on Abram to walk in a continuing obedience before him. This concept of giving the power and authority before the covenant is vital because he's saying this is the power source of the whole thing. Beloved, remember, in, um, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when we're talking about the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world, make, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always into the, even to the end of the age. Right? Do you remember the verse that precedes the Great Commission? Then Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, therefore go. Why is that pivotal? Because he's saying, it's not your power. It's not your strength. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, therefore 
go into all the world and make disciples. Not in your strength, but in mine, in, in, in the strength of Christ. Well, in the same way here, God says, Abram, I want to remind you, I am Almighty. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Remember, this blameless walking of Abram is not his justification. It's so important, guys, if not the most important, that we get this, that God is not saying, walk in a blameless manner so that way you are justified. He's already been declared justified. Remember, back in chapter 15, and Abraham believed, and the Lord accredited it to, accredited to him as righteousness. So this blameless walking is not Abram going, well, I want God to be pleased with me. He's already pleased. He's pleased by faith. Hebrews 11 makes that abundantly clear. But now he wants his life to be in line with his faith. Walk in purity before me. Now, I love, I love the, the, um, the attachment here. God says, okay, Abram, walk blameless before me, and he falls on his nose. Look at, look at the text. It says, and be, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. So much for walking blamelessly. Now, that response, I believe, is with great clarity telling us he understands who he's speaking to. What do you do when you come in contact with the Almighty? Fall to the ground. I have nothing that I could look at God and say, I'm, I, I've deserved this, I've earned this, I, there's, there's no, no scrap of anything I can put in front of him and justify myself. I fall on the ground before him. We need to be careful, you guys, in reference to our posture at times because we can fall into the trap of sometimes we can give a posture that shows obedience, a posture that shows that we're in worship, a posture that we recognize him, but internally, nothing. We need to be very careful that the the internal recognition of who he is is what's behind the posture of what we're doing. Whether it's the raising of our hands, whether it's when we're on our knees, whether it's when we're on our face, we want to make sure that these are in sync with one another. That was the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees and the way they were living their life in such a holy way with hearts that were just bitter, dark, black hearts. But there's nobody watching here except for God. So Abram's not impressing anybody else. No, he's not on display. No, He rightly sees God and therefore rightly sees Abraham before God. That's what happens at conversion, by the way. When we come to Christ, we rightly see the Lord. And the next response is to look at us and go, I'm undone, just as Isaiah said. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so... Abram's response to God is to fall on his face before him. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may walk, or that I may make my covenant between me and you 
and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell, on, Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold. Now look at verse 4. This is a covenant renewal and a name change. Is kind of my heading. If you're, hang your thoughts on that. Verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, <clears throat> this concept is so important in our understanding of the Bible. And it's the concept of progressive revelation. Where God progressively reveals more about himself. The illustration that helps me is a, an expanding lens, so like a camera lens, okay, that's giving me more and more understanding. Genesis 3.15, that the, the, um, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Just, just tiny. What does that even mean? Who is, what are we talking about? Now here, he's promised to Abraham, your seed, every nation, every family will be blessed by your offspring. Well, it just got a little bigger. We know he's coming from Abraham. Multitudes will come from you. It just got a little bit bigger. It'd be like if I, if I just wanted to take a picture of, of you all and I grabbed a camera, just this little dinky toss-away camera, and I took a picture, we, you know, folks would say, oh, well, Tim was listening to Dan preach Sunday. <laughs> and then somebody gets a better camera, wider, you go, oh, no, 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 the, uh, Dennis Widmer's here, too. Oh, hey, Don Margeson is there. Oh, there's Lloyd. Good, Lloyd's back in church. All right, that's good. Uh, you know? <laughs> And it just keeps expanding and expanding, and, and you go, ah, look at the body, they're all there. In the same way, I believe God is revealing more and more of his divine plan throughout redemptive history, showing his full scope. I don't believe Abraham knew exactly in detail what Isaiah knew. I don't think Isaiah fully understood what the apostle Paul knew, but God is progressively showing more and more. And he's doing that on a personal level with Abraham, by the way, as well, by the way. Um, some of the things that he promises Abraham here is he talks about there will be a multitude of nations, kings will come from you, so on and so forth. He hasn't said that yet in the narrative, but now he's saying it here and giving Abram a broader perspective, a bigger picture of what's happening. Beloved, this is no different than what he's doing with us right now. Remember when you got, maybe you remember the day you got saved or the time in your life where you got saved. You came to Christ and you knew, I love Jesus. And he died for my sin. And I got to tell my friends. You fast forward five years. Oh, I never knew that. You go to a Bible study, a brother or sister in the Lord says, now hold on a sec, this might wow you. Jesus is in the Old Testament books too. No way. He's in Matthew. No, no, seriously, seriously. Let me show you. And you go, <laughs> there's all these Christological passages. He's all over the place. And consistently throughout our life, that's happening. Parallel with that is God is growing us with the fruits of the Spirit. We have greater love. We have greater joy, greater peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. God is expanding this. He is so graciously, progressively showing himself and growing us. This is exactly what he's doing with Abram. Because all Abram knew was, I want you to leave your people, I want you to come to a land I'll give you, and there's going to be a, a large multitude that comes from you. Follow me. Okay, I'll follow. 
And God has widened that lens and widened that lens and widened that lens. Chapter 17 really widens this lens. God restates the covenant with Abram, and God changes the name of Abram. The, the name Abram means exalted father. Now think of the irony of this, guys. How many years has Abram been childless? Wife barren, no kids, and his name means exalted dad. <laughs> hey, exalted dad, come here. I don't have any kids. I know, exalted dad. Come on over. We're going to have a barbecue, exalted dad. Now, you, when, every time I've read Abram to you up to this point, I'm saying exalted dad. With no kids. Now, a promise that there's going to be some kids, but even that came quite a bit later in this guy's life. And every time Sarai says his name, exalted dad, I love you. Exalted dad, I'll marry you. Exalted dad, dinner's ready. Over and over and over and over again. Exalted dad, exalted dad, exalted dad. What a slap in the face every day. My name means exalted dad, and I don't have any children. All I've got is this promise from El Shaddai, that he'll accomplish this task. And now God changes his name. Now, here's the tough part for me as as preacher. I have called Abram, Abraham, since Genesis 12. And now I'm used to saying Abram, and now it's going to be Abraham. So when I make a mistake, I want you to point it out to me every sermon. No. I don't want you to point it out ever, is what I'm saying. Um, So exalted dad to what? Father of a multitude. It's interesting when you see a name change. And this is is in Scripture. You see this numerous times where somebody either changes their name or even times where God names them. Remember Ishmael, God hears. He named Ishmael. God tells the parents of Jesus what his name will be, for he will take away the sins of his people. The name change points to God's authority over Abram. If one of you came and started attending this church, and you had a baby while you were in this church, and then 10 years, 12 years, 13 years pass, and your child says, Pastor Dan, I really believe in the Lord Jesus, and I want to be baptized. And we baptized him, and then little Johnny came out of the water, and I stood before PCBC, and I said, little Johnny will from now on be Randall. I don't know what Randall means. Like I said in the first service, it just came to my head, and there you go. But if I said, from now on, Mom and Dad, the name you gave them will not be their name. Their name is now Randall so-and-so, because I want it to be. They would say, it's been really nice attending Pacific Coast Bible Church. Thank you very much. And then they'll leave. This ability to say, you were this, no longer is this your name. I'm changing your name, shows the ownership and the authority and the, dare I say, the parental authority over Abraham for God to name him, rename him. It also points to um, God's foretelling of what he's going to accomplish. You see this often where a name is a way of God foretelling what that person's character will be like or what their future will be like. So when he changes his name, this is just another way. You can pile it onto it, beloved. This is another way of God telling Abram, I am sovereignly in control. 
your name is now dad of multitudes. You were dad, exalted dad, now you're dad of multitudes. And you just picture Abram saying, now, I believe he believes the Lord, but still, in the back of his mind, that response has to be, I'm a hundred. I'm a centurion. How am I going to be a dad of multitudes? Because I'm El Shaddai. You can submit, or you can reject, but you will not change what I just said. Period. Because I am all-powerful. See, this is what's interesting, is that often, beloved, when we see our limitations, we, we focus on the limitations rather than focusing on the Lord. We look at our inabilities, and we give our attention to our inabilities instead of his great ability. We don't see El Shaddai, we see the exalted dad who's got no kids. Where David, charging up against that mountain of a man with his little sling and rocks, his mindset was, I can't miss such a big target. Why? Because he's looking to God, not to David. So often my focus is Dan and not God. My incapabilities, my limitations, my failures, rather than my king. So no, you're not exalted dad, you're dad of multitudes. God's giving him an expanded view of the future. Now, look, look here, guys, I'm going to... Are you kidding? All right, um, look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations from an everlasting covenant, or for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here's some details of that covenant. Number one, a multitude of nations will come from you. Number two, you'll be exceedingly fruitful. You'll make him into nations, and kings will come from you. The covenant is with Abraham and Abraham's offspring. This land is given to Abraham and to his seed. He will be their God. It is quite interesting to think all that is involved in what's being told here throughout redemptive history. All that is involved as God's working among this people. By the way, just jot it down if you're keeping notes. It's fascinating. He says kings will come from you. We'll get to the Davidic line, the Davidic kingdom, and we'll see the kings that come from David and his line. But beloved, the cool part is eventually through the line of the Davidic kings will eventually come the king of kings and lord of lords. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says that there's Abraham, David, and then moving down to the Lord Jesus. That great king, the king of kings, is one of the offsprings that will come through Abram in this promise. Because if at some point this earth's done, the sheep and the goats will be separate from one another, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be one king for all eternity who came from the line of Abraham. 
which is <laughs> it's just phenomenal. Guys, if you think about all that's involved in what he's telling Abraham here, um, eschatologically, it's, it's just off the charts to think about all that is involved in this promise to this man. God in the flesh will come to earth, be crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, right hand of the Father, build his church, return, take his church, do away with all of this world, and then reestablish a new kingdom with new heavens, new earth, new bodies, and his glory. And all of that, Abraham, is actually going to come through your line. He'd have a coronary if explained all of that. But that is what's explained in your New Testament with clarity. With clarity. Okay, so a sign is given. Let me go through this kind of quickly. Verse 9. The sign of the covenant. And God said to Abram, Abraham, there you go, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offsprings. Now, I want to remind you of this. I think it's, it's kind of important. This is not the very first time circumcision was practiced by a people group. This was being done among other people groups in the world before this took place. What's happening here is God's taking a practice and he's setting apart as a particular sign here. Um, you would see this in other ways. For instance, the illustration I would give is this thing right here. When I see that, my first thought is Jesus Christ crucified. Before Christ was crucified, a ton of people had been crucified. But it brought new significance, new meaning. Why? Because God set it apart for the means by which Jesus would die. God has taken the sign of has taken the practice of circumcision and has set it apart as significant for this people. This is a sign of the covenant between you and me. Now, just a couple points, real quick, on why. Number one is the concept of he's setting a people apart. This is throughout your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, the New Testament, where God specifically says you are a holy people pulled away from this world. You are different than the rest of the people around you. I have made you different than the rest. Your practices are different. Your faith is different. I've made you a people group that I have plucked from this world to be a bright, shiny light of those who follow me. Now, Think about your Old Testament scriptures and how many times God comes to Israel and says, you're acting just like the world. I called you. I called you out of the world. And so this, this idea of the removal of the foreskin, we're removed, cutting away, the symbolism of the cutting away of the flesh. Remember, guys, throughout your Bible, you're going to see this concept ultimately, of a spiritual circumcision, which is a kind of a funny play on words, but the idea that your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. And we hear the phrase, the circumcision of the heart. 
This practice, this sign here is important, but it's a sign of what has been take, of what needs to take place in the heart. This, this concept of circumcision, what's being done physically here to this individual, is a sign of, of the substance. Not the, not the symbol, but the substance of what's taking place. So it's symbolizing also the purity of God's people. The sign is a sign to parents, to the son and his wife. This sign is obviously connected to the fact that these promises are made to the descendants of Abraham. Through this act, this sexual act, more children will come through Abraham's line, and this will be a forever um, sign of the covenant in the actual flesh of that male. God's selection, God's choice, God's sign of this covenant he made with them. Circumcision would take place on the eighth day. But beloved, please don't miss this point because it is a linchpin in in Paul's argument in the book of Romans. How old is Abraham when he takes the sign? 99. How old is Ishmael? He's 13. Okay, just hang that there. Hold it there for just a sec, okay? Abraham would see... Every male would follow this. This is the sign of the covenant. It's important, and it needs to take place. God says, this is between you and me. This is the covenant, and this is the sign of the covenant. And he goes on further here. He says, both who he is born and he who is bought needs to have this done. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay. Now, I'm going to take just a little bit of extra time, and if you're angry, just send an email to John Stoopfell and we'll visit later. Um, <laughs> uh, my reason is, if I closed in prayer right now, before God, I would feel like I was doing a great disservice to you to just leave it where I'm leaving it, okay? So I'm going to go a little over, track with me. There's no Sunday school um, because this is too important. Ken Hughes says, this external sign was to symbolize a whole life commitment. Abraham was not justified by taking the sign. Eventually, the Jews would put their hope in the physical doing of the sign while forgetting the reality the sign symbolized, namely justification by faith in the promise of God, worshiping the external while neglecting the heart change. And so, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And the reason this is so key, my dear friends, is because I can understand to some level why the Jews in the New Testament are so strong on this concept of you must be circumcised. You must take the sign of this covenant. And Paul's response is to take them back to Abraham, who was declared just before he took the sign. So, Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here we go. Pay careful attention. Think of chapter 17. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Remember that symbolism, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but, also, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Please notice this, beloved. Heir of the world, not just Canaan. This promise has been expanded. That he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I love this, guys. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The point being, this sign of the covenant back here is not the substance, but simply the sign of that which was taking place in the heart of the people. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus in John chapter 8 says, if you were children of Abraham, you would do the deeds of Abraham. He's saying that to a bunch of Jewish people. Romans chapter 9, Paul says, Not all Israel is Israel. 
And then in Galatians, he makes reference to Jews and Gentiles, saying, if you are in Christ, then you are in Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them. And if you're in Christ, so are you. This is why it's so important, beloved, is that if we read the Old Testament simply as something that happened in the past where people got saved differently and it has nothing to do with us, then we come to the New Testament and say, I'm saved by Jesus, they were saved by works of the law. You just made two Gospels and you just neglected the entire teaching of the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, he's saying it has always been justification by faith. And how does he do that? By going to the Old Testament. There is not two ways of salvation. The Jews were not saved in a different fashion we were. Simply, the progression of revelation had not gone to that fullest extent yet. And so I want us to be oh so careful when we read through the Old Testament and come away going, Abraham was justified by works, and I'm justified by faith in Jesus. No, you're not. Or no, he wasn't. It has always been justification by faith. So, let me just touch on this little point real quick. Did God wait for him to be 99 years old on purpose? I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's timing was absolutely spot on, perfectly in sync with his redemptive plan in the life of Abraham. And I will close with this principle just for your consideration. The New Testament authors are the inspired interpreters of the Old Testament. What they say in their interpretation of the Old Testament is the Spirit of God interpreting the Old Testament. And so our understanding of it must be flavored by the interpretation of the New Testament author. There's a lot hinged on that, eschatologically, theologically, but it's a principle that is, in my opinion, desperately needed for the Church of Jesus Christ. So I close with this one statement, one thought. Please recognize that nobody goes to God on their terms. We go to God on His terms. I underlined it in red in my Bible. I don't know if you did that or not, but if you underline the I wills throughout, your, throughout this passage... It is consistently God. I will, I will, I will, I will. And the details of this is all declared by the Lord. You will come to me in the manner in which I have told you to come to me. Why is that so vitally important? Because the world right now wants to tell us how we please God. And they have no clue how to please God. God tells us how to please God. And there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is that name and that name alone. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only means by which we are justified before the living God. No preacher said it. The king of the universe has declared that. And the sacrifice of his son is the only means by which anybody can ever be saved. And I don't really care at all what any man wants to say because it's the living God who's declared that truth of the gospel. 
And I know, guys, I know there's pressure all over the place trying to get us to budge, to slip, to just take off some of the right angles of the good news. Let me remind you, there is no salvation if we alter the message. People go to hell if we give them a false gospel for the sake of being accepted. So even though we may try to soften it to make it slide through a little better, people are in agony for all eternity thinking that they believe the true message because we altered it. So let us be careful not to clip away the power of the gospel. For the Lord says there's one way man, woman, child can come to me. And that's through the righteousness of Jesus. So, Father, I thank you for your word. Help us to be bold. Help us to be clear. And help us to be compassionate. Steels of spine with velvet gloves. Being a a loving people who will not flinch on the means of salvation. For God, as you pursued Abram, and as he believed your promise, God, you have sovereignly pursued us. I have tasted, I have tasted the sweetness of salvation. Lord, please help me to be faithful to declare the message that brings that sweetness and not shorten it, not soften it, but tenderly herald it. For it is the message that saves souls. I pray and ask for faithfulness and boldness in a very twisted culture for my brothers and sisters in this place this morning. God, keep us strong, I pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd stand with us and we'll give the glory to God in a song. To God be the glory.